chapter 5. Ordinarily, on Sunday evenings, we're working through the Gospel of Matthew, but about every two months or so, we disrupt that flow in order to introduce a new spiritual discipline, what we call the practices of Jesus, or sometimes a principle of emotional health into our communities and into our way of life. Van City Church is built on the premise that those who follow Jesus become disciples or apprentices to a teacher. And the three lifelong goals of any apprentice of Jesus is to be with Jesus, to become like Jesus, and to do what Jesus did. And we've come to believe that in order to actually become like Jesus, what in theology is called spiritual formation, it takes much more than simply singing songs and listening to a TED Talk on a Sunday night. So not unlike mastering the piano or the culinary arts or kung fu is one of my favorite examples, working toward mastery of any uh, great art form or discipline, uh, including the way of Jesus, requires a tremendous amount of practice and training. So consequently, we take on a new practice of Jesus every eight weeks or so. We teach on it a bit here on Sunday nights, and then we spread out into smaller communities across the city to actually give it a try with a guided curriculum, accountability, and support from the community. So tonight, we begin a practice that is as crucial as it is exciting, and it's also as mysterious as it is simple and straightforward. Um, tonight, we begin the practice of prayer. So let's begin with the scriptures and, of course, with the lifestyle and words of Jesus himself. Look at Luke chapter 5, and let's read beginning in verse 15. Yet the news about him, Jesus, spread all the more so that crowds of people came to hear him and to be healed of their sicknesses. But Jesus often withdrew to lonely places and prayed. It was interesting. More and more people want to get to Jesus, but he becomes harder to access because he's constantly going away to pray. Turn the page, Luke chapter 6. Let's read beginning with verse 12. One of those days, Jesus went out to a mountainside to pray, and he spent the night praying to God. Okay, that's fascinating and intimidating. It seems that Jesus at least sometimes spent in the entire night praying to God. Turn over just a bit to chapter 9. Let's read verse 18. Once Jesus was praying in private and his disciples were with him. So imagine the scenario, if you will. Jesus is somewhere. He's praying. The disciples are not far away. Skip down to verse 28. About eight days after Jesus had said this, he took Peter, John, and James with him, and he went up onto a mountain to pray. So now he's up to his old tricks. While he was speaking, a cloud appeared and covered them, and they were afraid as they entered the cloud. A voice came from the cloud saying, this is my son whom I have chosen. Listen to him. Okay, hang in there. Just one more. Turn to Luke chapter 11, and let's read the first verse. Luke 11, verse 1. One day, Jesus was again praying in a certain place. When he finished, one of his disciples said to him, Lord, teach us to pray, just as John taught his disciples. So stay right here in Luke. We'll be back in a few minutes. This is, of course, if you know anything about the Gospels, it's only a small selection available from many, many more like it. For Jesus of Nazareth, our teacher and our master, prayer was irrevocably tethered to his life with God. When Jesus felt close to the Father, he talked to him. When he felt far from the Father, it actually happened, he talked to him. For Jesus, prayer was braided around the routine of morning, noon, night, his daily and weekly schedule, his time of celebration and of crisis, of grief and of suffering. And from the text, we can see that Jesus prayed every day, often for long periods of time at a time, sometimes even through the night without end. And Jesus is depicted in the narrative of his biographies as someone who is drawn to prayer as if it were irresistible. Jesus puts off other things in order to pray, and not just trivial things. He puts off people. And even in this text we just read, he puts off healing and what we would call ministry, good stuff, so that he can pray. Because he wants to pray. Um, he enjoys time with his Father. He needs time with the Father. And during those times, sometimes incredible things happen with like a cloud and lightning and a weird face that's going on. I don't know exactly. Um, it was amazing. So, why then isn't prayer that way for so many of us? 
In fact, I venture a discouraging guess that were I to survey the room anonymously, of course, asking how many of you felt tremendously satisfied or even competent in your approach to prayer, my guess is that very few of you would imagine you belong to such a category. If we may wade a bit further into the waters of honesty, I suspect that for many of us, prayer is actually something of a bummer. Perhaps it bores us or it frustrates us, like a doing battle with a wandering mind desperately attempting to recite an inner monologue at the ceiling. And there's no back and forth, there's no gratification other than a chore completed, which is not so bad, but there's nothing to compel us into the wilderness to pray, to get away from our work and from people because we have to pray all night long at a time. We can hardly motivate ourselves to wake up a half hour earlier, let alone get away from anyone and everyone to pray through the night. And really, why pray at all? Because we have things to busy ourselves. We have Netflix and Hulu and Instagram and Facebook and Twitter and text messaging and an endless buffet of chemical-infused fast food for the brain well on its way to atrophy. And of course, we recognize that it would, be, it would be preferable to pray more, sure, but what can you do? Because broaching the topic mentally uh, induces guilt, so we avoid it, uh, and then our hungry little fingers just go on stabbing at a touchscreen instead. The point is, we're distracted, and we're addicted, and we're spoken for. In fact, I want to uh, venture a small experiment with you guys. We're all family here. Uh, if you just wandered in, maybe this will be weird for you, but it's fine. You, if you have an iPhone, I want you to take it out. I'm not going to ask you to break it or anything like that. Don't worry. If you have an iPhone, take it out. If, uh, if, you're, if you're one of those people who has some other kind of smartphone or, or no smartphone at all, don't worry about it. You're off the hook. Just, um, we'll get to you in a second. But if you have an iPhone, go ahead and take it out. Now I want you to uh, open the settings app. If you don't know how to get to it, Swipe left from your main screen and type in settings, and it'll appear. It looks like a bunch of little gears or something. You guys are doing this, right? Who said no? Someone just actively say no? Oh, because you don't have one. Okay, well, you don't have to be a butthead. <laughs> I'm just kidding. It's fine. It's for, we're friends. It's fine. Um, now, go into your settings app. Scroll down until you see a green icon that's labeled battery. Got it? Um, click on the battery icon. When the next screen loads, you're going to tap usage at the bottom. And your phone will reveal uh, how much usage has got been dedicated to each of your apps. Now, in fact, you, there's a small clock-shaped icon uh, right above that usage data. If you click on that, it'll give you that data in minutes. Uh, you can select from, I think, the last 24 hours as well as the previous seven days. Yeah, someone making bummer sounds already? It's a bummer, isn't it? Now... Don't, don't close it. Sit in that for a second. <laughs> uh, I read this week, I was trying to, you know, pull up statistics on what is and isn't ordinary, and that was massively disappointing. Um, I read that the average, for instance, I think uh, Instagram happens to be the most uh, used iPhone app at the moment, and the average Instagram user spends anywhere from 20 minutes to an hour every single day on that app. So maybe you're thinking, if your data minutes reveal something similar to that, well, I mean, it's not so bad, an hour a day, uh, you know, seven hours a week. Um, that's like an entire work day, almost, <laughs> dedicated to just, you know, scrolling through utter meaninglessness. I mean, obviously, I have an opinion about it. Now, um, I did it, too. I'm not doing it right now, but I, I did it while I was writing the teaching, and I don't have the social medias on my phone personally, but believe me, it was still very disappointing and discouraging. Uh, for me, it was just other stuff. Text messaging, um, I like to do that. I like to talk to my, and don't think for a second that that's noble or valid or so. It's, it's pretty trivial. And, uh, and like emails and, uh, and movie news websites, you know, a lot of time on those. Um, now, with those numbers in front of you, do a quick mental inventory of approximately how much time you spent uh, praying this week if you're a disciple of Jesus. Now, believe me, this isn't a guilt trip. I'm, not, I'm really not doing this so that you can be like, oh my gosh, he's right, I'm awful. Um, it's really just meant to give us a sort of shared uh, perspective on the kind of cultural moment that we're in, and I'm absolutely right in there with you guys. Uh, where once in our lives, think about this, especially if you're like, I don't know, over 30 or something like that, there was a time when we stood in line for roller coasters, right? And we played 20 questions or, or something like that or, you know, like, would you rather game? 
Or you, uh, or, I haven't been to an amusement park since the advent of an iPhone, but I imagine now it's just people looking down, right? Have, have you been? You haven't? Yeah, is that what it's like? Just a bunch of people like this while they're waiting? Um, we, we used to take walks with the premise of just turning something over in our heads while we walked around. I, I live on this road. I have no idea why, but the road is quite busy. It seems like it shouldn't be. Uh, Mike and I live on this street, and there's just people going up and down it all day, and half of them are just like this, and I want so bad to just open the window and be like, put down your phone, and see what they do. I don't, because my wife, Abby's like, don't yell at that person every time. Um, we used to just take walks just to think about stuff, uh, or we kept novels in our bathroom, you know? Um, I know, it's, it's funny that I just mentioned that, but, uh, or we, we used any such opening in our day where we didn't have something to preoccupy uh, us to access God, to pray. And maybe a lot of us were compelled in those times, like, well, I've got nothing, I've got to walk, or I've got some time to kill. This is when I can pray. And today, most of us, and I'm absolutely including myself in this, we, we tend to instead, you know, lock eyes with, with utter uselessness and scroll through uh, Instagram photos spawned on the damp basement floor of insecurity and deceit. And uh, we, we, <laughs> we, we feel ourselves swept into the whirlpool of false urgency. This is, this is me, you know, texts that you just have to answer right this second or emails that can't go unread or at replies that demand your attention, I guess, or comments that are just burning a hole in your photo or whatever. And... Really, it's easy to pick on because it's a, a, a big shared thing that we have, but technology isn't our only enemy. It stands to reason, I realized just from looking at you guys while we were doing this, that um, some of you aren't addicted to a smartphone. Way to go. You know, the three of you or whatever. Way to go. Really proud of you. Uh, good for you. But maybe you have like a television or something, or, or you play the video games, or, or maybe it's neither of those things. It's, it's not a phone. It's not high technology or low technology, but maybe you have money. And sure, you don't think of yourself as wealthy, but in terms of time and global perspective, you have more money than the vast majority of human beings in the world uh, before you and currently. So you can buy stuff. You have options. Um, entertainment or fine dining, or like less fine dining, but dining, you know, you, you get to pick. So why pray? You have access to doctors. A lot of you guys have access to health insurance. So terms like desperate or hungry or thirsty, they don't really concern you. Um, what concerns you is a new jacket or a recognizable brand on that tag irritating the back of your neck. Or, or perhaps digital addiction and wealth are neither of your problems, or maybe both of them are. But we've still yet to broach the topic of our antagonistic host culture, the world in which we live, the vitriolic battlefield of pseudo-Christian politics and your relatives arguing on Facebook and what sometimes feels like this widening chasm between what the church ought to be and what it often seems like it is. And then doubt encroaches and there's new critiques of faith every single day um, and new podcasts and, and Bill Nye and, and, and more and more hip millennial former Christians that are wising up and leaving the church behind because they take a walk in the woods and they look at a tree and that's church for them or whatever, you know, I'm very cynical tonight. Please forgive me. Um, there's this another podcast, wow, with some savvy bearded sort of Christian guy who uses swear words and drink beers. Wow, he's so edgy, man. Um, <laughs> something inside of us feels cynicism coil around us, and obviously I'm a perfect example uh, tonight. And, uh, and, and, and maybe it's not cynicism with the things I'm talking about. Maybe you identify with those things. And then the cynicism is directed toward faith in general. And you start to ask the question, well, what is prayer anyway? And is it real? And is it useful? And is it a charade? Everything and everyone around me seems to uh, suggest that it's foolish, utter foolishness to sit there and recite lions to someone that you can't hear audibly uh, or, or see with your eyes. And listen to me. This really isn't about guilt if you use your phone or, or you have money or, you know, you, you live in an antagonistic host culture. It's not to beat each and every one of us down with the burden of, of every single obstacle between us and prayer. But it's also not to let us off the hook. Um, it is what it is, so to speak. I say all this so that we can be honest about the shared state of things. 
I think that for many of us, it stands to reason that we would not exactly call prayer a strong point in our apprenticeship to Jesus. And if you're the exception to that rule, please don't tune out. We absolutely need you in this season that uh, we're about to begin in our, our church. If you do feel that way, that you would not describe prayer as a strong suit in your apprenticeship to Jesus, you are absolutely not alone. And yet, we cannot afford to become comfortable with that status quo. Because I I would argue that prayer is easily one of the most important aspects by far in our lives as disciples of Jesus, if not the most Thus, as we venture into the practice before us, we need to understand just what prayer is. So, in the simplest, broadest sense of the term, prayer is talking with God. I think most of you would would be prepared to describe it thusly. This is how I describe prayer to my uh, three-year-old son, Beck. Uh, Let's talk to Jesus for a couple of minutes. Um, And I should emphasize that word with rather than to. Prayer is inherently dialogue, not monologue. We talk with God, not just to God. And we'll talk much more about what that means and how that happens in the weeks to come. In fact, an even broader understanding of prayer might be life with God. Uh, In his book, A Praying Life, Paul Miller defines prayer thusly. Prayer is simply the medium through which we experience and connect to God. I love how simple and how strong that description is. And yes, though prayer is relational by definition, it is also a practice. It is a spiritual discipline. And like any of the disciplines, the purpose or the goal is not just the discipline itself. It's a means to an end. And that end is to have and enjoy relationship with God. So one way of understanding that premise is through the lens of nearly all relational conversation in general. When I get home from work, I always ask my son to come sit with me and talk with me for a second. Calm conversation is often a struggle at his age, but we go for it anyway. And uh, for Beck, my son, recalling the day's events, like any conversation, almost always devolves into talk about dinosaurs uh, immediately, if not uh, all near, nearly so. Even when we get home on a Sunday night, and I'm like, ah, oh, Beck, what did you learn about in church tonight? They have this like fantastic curriculum that they go through, and it's really helpful. It does come up later on in the week, but immediately every time, Beck, what did you learn about downstairs? Dinosaurs. Like, I, don't, I really don't think you did. Did you? <laughs> Megan, what's going on? <laughs> um, so I just go, oh, right, right, okay. Maybe that's what was going on up here for you. Of course, the point uh, of having this conversation isn't actually to inventory the day's events, but to connect with and experience my son and his thoughts and his voice and his person. And the same is true of conversation with my wife over dinner, for example. I've been married for nearly a decade now, and I can say with both a word of warning and a word of lament, personally, that without talking to one another, you guys probably know this, closeness withers, and it withers very closely, or very quickly. So with this in mind, it, it should be easy enough to deduce why it is that prayer for the disciple of Jesus is as vital and as serious as communication is in marriage. We simply must learn how to pray. Even in the age of the smartphone and wealth and health insurance and comfort and entertainment and on down the list, we simply must learn. And I I suppose that every last one of us examines the prayer life of Jesus, that stuff that we just read, and we think, well, good grief, I'm way off. I'm not even close. And you're in great company. Uh, His disciples felt the same way. When when face-to-face with the living example every day, of Jesus' approach to prayer, his disciples seem to become aware of two things. One, they don't know how to pray like Jesus because they ask him. And two, they want to learn how to pray like Jesus. So they come to him and they ask, Lord, teach us to pray. And keep in mind, these disciples, this is fascinating to me, they were privy to all the incredible feats of Jesus. And interestingly, Matthew makes a special note of this request. Luke makes a special note of this request. If the disciples ask, Lord, teach us to cure leprosy with a touch like you do, or to drive out demons or calm a storm with a spoken phrase, or or teach us to prophesy the way that you do, the way that you spoke over the woman in the well and knew stuff about her, teach us to, to raise the dead... If they ask for those lessons in particular, uh, the author doesn't mention it, but he does mention that they asked Jesus to teach them how to pray, which is fascinating to me. I suspect one reason might be that all else Jesus did 
was itself an outworking of his time in and approach to prayer. So maybe the disciples were discerning enough to realize, man, if we get this, then maybe we get the secret to Jesus' relationship with the Father. And in the text, Jesus answers the question. They ask him how to pray, and he gives them an answer. But predictably of Jesus, his answer is complex. So let's look at Luke chapter 11 once again and see what our teacher has to say when asked. Let's go ahead and start at Luke 11, verse 1, one more time. One day, Jesus was praying in a certain place, and when he finished, one of his disciples said to him, Lord, teach us to pray, just as John the baptizer taught his disciples how to pray. And Jesus said to them, right away, when you pray, say, and he gives them this template, Father, hallowed be your name, your kingdom come, give us each day our daily bread, Forgive us our sins, for we also forgive everyone who sins against us, and lead us not into temptation. Now, we're going to talk just a bit about each line before we end tonight, but we're going to spend the bulk of our time with the opening phrases because they reveal so much about Jesus' paradigm and his presuppositions when it comes to the way he prayed. Massive implications for you and I. Are you guys still with me? You're up for just a little more work before we're done? Great. Thank you. Now... Notice the way that Jesus doesn't reach the requests of his prayer until halfway through his entire template. And that's what this is. It's a template. When, when we begin to unpack this template, we'll see that there are four presuppositions with which Je- Jesus invites us and his disciples to approach prayer. Meaning, when you enter into prayer, bring these assumptions with you. And it all begins with the understanding that God is your Father. In fact, the term Father is easily Jesus' favorite means by which to refer to God himself. The God of the universe, creator God, is Dad. When his disciples ask to be taught Jesus' prayer method, he immediately invites them into the exact same paradigm. That is, Jesus is saying to them, when I pray, I begin with Father. You should do that too. So let's stop there and talk about the inherent challenge in such a thing. For some of you, I realize thinking of God as your father is about the last thing you'd like to do. Or perhaps it's not that you wouldn't like to, but it's just so hard. How can you possibly frame prayer with God as your father if your father hurt you or hit you? How can you picture God as a heavenly father when your father on earth abused you or neglected you, or if he left your family. And I don't say any of that to set you guys up with flippant solutions. I'll just do this and it'll fix it. I realize, I think, that for you, praying to God as a father will only come along the complex road toward healing. And it is a process and it takes a while. But I do want to say that it is crucial to get that and that it is so worthwhile And I want you guys to to hear me when I say this. Your image of God, this is why it's so important, your image of God, everything that comes to mind, both consciously and subconsciously, when you think of God, it will shape the way that you pray, for better or for worse. Inevitably, your image of God can create a robust life of prayer and closeness and vibrancy and relationship, or it can destroy your prayer life altogether. Greg Boyd puts it like this. The way that you imagine God is the single most important factor in your life. For our relationship with God is mediated through our mental images of Him. How we imagine God thus determines the sort of relationship you have with Him and the sort of difference this relationship will make in your life. If we embrace an untrustworthy mental picture of God, we cannot enter into a life-giving relationship with Him. Everything God created us to be depends on the beauty and accuracy of your mental picture of him. John, Pastor John Tyson in uh, New York puts it like this. Unless you break the stronghold of false images of God in your mind, you'll never be drawn to prayer. If you're bored with God, you may be the person who's boring. Or it could be that you're just distracted by trivia in our culture. When you break through that boredom, you'll be drawn to the glory of who God really is. And this is what I'm getting at. If in your mind, either consciously or slightly less so, God is an angry, dissatisfied dad who is preemptively disappointed 
or retributive or frustrated with you, then who would want to talk to him? If God is far away or unfathomable or shrouded in stoic mystery, then who can figure out how to talk to him? But if God is a kind and generous and affectionate and gentle, caring, compassionate, forgiving father, then I, I can approach that guy. I can talk to him. I can ask him for things. And nothing in my life has adjusted my portrait of God like having kids. And, and don't worry, I'm not saying that you have to have kids to understand God. This is just how uh, my own story has worked itself out. Um, because you should, you should see the way that my kid handles uh, my coming and going. I, I, you know, if you're dead, maybe you can relate to this. He, he watches me ride off to work uh, on my bike when I go through the window, you know, like waving like a maniac. Um, and uh, <laughs> before I go, he like asks, like, maybe just a couple more minutes, we can play with dinosaurs, you know, that kind of thing. He does, trying to draw it out as long as he can. He, he calls me at work to tell me about he and his mom and his sister found snails in the yard, and I can hear Abby in the background being like, oh, okay, okay, you, you told him now, now give it back, you know, that kind of thing. Um, he calls me into his room at night with questions, like, uh, and we're trying to put a limit on him, you know, because he's really just trying to stay up, but sometimes they're so funny, like, ta-da, I got a question. And I'm like, no, no more questions, but sometimes I'm like, I just want to know what the question is, so I'll go in there and be like, what's up? So, uh, what's your favorite uh, animal? <laughs> That's that kind of stuff. And then sometimes if I don't give him the answer he wants, he corrects me. I was like, I don't know, maybe an alligator. No, no. I think maybe a flamingo. Okay, yeah, they're great too. Uh, when, I, when I get home from work, he like screams with joy, he cheers, he runs to me, and he becomes frantic because there's so much that he wants to tell me about his day that he starts tripping over his words because there's just so much to say, and now he finally gets to tell me about it. And, and he's absolutely not inhibited whatsoever in asking me for things. You know, he's, hey, Dada, bring me my Psittacosaurus. Or, hey, Dada, can you get me a snack? Or, hey, Dada, can we go outside and play? And, hey, Dada, let's go to the store together. And I think the reason why is that he knows, or he's gathered at this point in his, you know, short three and a half years or whatever, that, that I love to do things for him. I enjoy that very much. I don't always say yes. And he still understands that I want to give him things uh, fundamentally, I want to talk to him. I want to be with him. And listen to me. Jesus says, when you pray, think of God that way. Whether your dad on earth was that way or not, think of God that way. And if that's true, then that changes everything. Now, once you've framed God correctly as your father, Jesus goes on. And if you're looking at an NIV, you'll see a footnote right after father that points out that some manuscripts include the phrase in heaven. You, you guys probably know there's two versions of this prayer template in the New Testament. There's this one and another longer, more famous version in Matthew's gospel, which includes in heaven as well. And we need to take a moment to parse that out because... In America, and I talk about this quite a bit, we have sort of a wacky cultural notion of what heaven is. Some of us can't help but imagine this cloudy metropolis in some cosmic dimension filled with winged, disembodied spirits. And maybe we think of heaven primarily as somewhere that people go when they die. But that's not at all what the authors of Scripture mean when they talk about heaven, especially in this prayer template. In fact, the term here in Greek is plural, and it means the heavens. And the word is aranos. Uh, frankly, it just means air or sky, if you like. And it may sound strange upon first utterance in that context, but one way of interpreting this phrase could be, our Father in the air. And the idea is this, our Father, who is in the very air all around us, who surrounds us at every minute, in and around everything, up against your very skin. Jesus is saying, as you pray to your good Father, remember He's not far away, He's not aloof, or inaccessible. He is as close as the very air all around you. This is, to my estimation, another area of massive damage done to our thinking by a misunderstanding of the concept of heaven. Because many of us read our Father in heaven, and we immediately think our Father who is forever locked in some far-off dimension uh, of which I have no understanding nor, nor reach. And what Jesus is saying here is precisely the opposite of that. Do some of you guys know that sensation of uh, maybe it's being in nature or um, experiencing this still, quiet moment or being in the face of some incredible work of art, and suddenly you're just struck 
perhaps involuntarily by the closeness of God. You're like, oh my gosh, there is a God and he's very near to me. Um, for me, it was, you know, this moment, you know, traveling, you know, sitting on a, a rock face looking out at the ocean in New Zealand. It was a predictable thing. Like, oh my gosh, God. Um, or ordinarily, it's for me personally like a cold, rainy morning in the winter when it's still dark at 8 a.m. And, and you can hear nothing but the hum of like the radiator and the patter of raindrops on the windows. Or it's like watching my kids while they're asleep. Or um, it's being in a movie theater during the third act of, of Creed, arguably the second or third greatest Rocky film of all time. And suddenly being like, oh my gosh, God. Uh, <laughs> Do you guys not feel that? It was big. You know what I'm talking about, Mike. Yeah, you know what I'm talking about. These, these strange, beautiful moments when you're suddenly struck by God's closeness. And my point is that God is everywhere. And we're reminded of his closeness in un- unique ways. Some are personal for you and some are universal for, for a lot of people. And these moments where all that distracts us from God's omnipresence are silenced or they simply fall away. Because your life as it is is often an endless parade of distraction from God's closeness, which piles up like this awful round of Tetris, you know. And, and you can't see or hear or feel God through the Tetris pileup. And so he feels far away at best, or he feels entirely absent at worst. But that's just an illusion. God is as close as the air around you. We simply forget or we disorganize the things that we love. We, we tangle up our priorities. We make a mess. And in teaching his disciples to pray, Jesus begins by saying, first, understand who God is to you, Father, good Father. And next, remember how very close he is at all times, right at this very moment when you sit down to talk to him. And then he goes on from there. Hallowed be your name. Now, I don't know about you guys, but I don't talk like that personally. Um, and, uh, and I'm uh, from Georgia, so I often say words and expressions that I, I'm learning still like seven or eight years into living up here that are uh, entirely meaningless, apparently. Um, for example, uh, I debated with this one, and my, my wife wanted so bad for me to admit that I still call grocery carts buggies, which she uh, gets so frustrated with all the time. What? What's a buggy? You know? It's this. It's the grocery cart. I did it this morning, actually. So there, I included that for you guys. But this is what... <laughs> um, Let's see how this one goes. In the South, we have this term for rude behavior or outward rude behavior called showing your butt. Uh, I think that's just us. And, uh, and recently, uh, a few months back, my sister was visiting from Georgia. And for whatever reason, she's absolutely convinced that if she visits the Pacific Northwest, um, that someone is going to force her to eat kale. I don't know why this, this idea crept into her head. Um, as if kale is all that we eat up here or something. Um, I think it's just because at some point she asked if I liked it, and I was like, sure, I guess, yeah, depending, and and that was it. I don't trust you anymore. So I keep telling her, uh, you know, she was leading up to the visit, and during the visit, I kept saying, like, kale may be accessible at some eateries. I have no control over this, Um, but it will almost certainly never be imposed on you via coercive force, I think. And she conceded, but only after she issued this warning. When we were about to step into one restaurant in particular, she said, if I go in that restaurant and there ain't nothing but kale, I'm going to show my butt. <laughs> and that means that she was going to have an outwardly bad attitude about it. It's a warning. Um, so some bystanders who are standing over here are like, what? <laughs> uh, my, <laughs> my point is that some phrases... <laughs> have less meaning depending on the time and the context. And most of us don't have any use for hallowed be your name because we just don't talk that way. So let's unpack it a bit. In the broad technical sense, this has to do with setting God's name. Uh, in, in, in Hebrew thinking, a name is much more than just a moniker you go by. It's like your identity, who you are, the deepest thing that makes you who you are. Um, God's identity, who God is, is apart from everything else, because it's holy. And uh, another way of understanding that word is altogether unique. It's uh, uh, different from everything else. This is a way of framing your prayer with the understanding that no one is like God because of what makes God God, right? Um, In relationship, we get to access what makes God so unique. We get to access his love for all people, for example, which doesn't come naturally to human beings. 
um, his joy, his peace, his, his calmness, um, all things that are often entirely unnatural for a great many of us. The point is, you're not just here to ask for stuff. You get to do that, absolutely. More on that in just a minute. But that's not the point of the whole thing. The point is that you get to be with your father who is always so close and he's not like anyone else. And when you're with him, you get to access who he is and what he's like, which is unlike anything in the whole world. Tim Keller put it this way, to hallow God's name is to have a heart of grateful joy toward God and even more, a wondrous sense of his beauty. Consider how different this is from the normal way we use prayer to get things. We may believe in God, but our deepest hopes and happiness reside in things, as in how successful we are or in our social relationships. We therefore pray mainly when our career or finances are in trouble or when some relationship or social status is in jeopardy. When life is going smoothly and our truest heart treasures seem safe, it does not occur to us to pray. Seldom or never do we spend sustained time adoring and praising God. We know God is there, but we tend to see Him as a means through which we get things to make us happy. For most of us, He has not become our happiness. So this whole hallowed be your name thing is really about beginning your time with God by recognizing that He is the source of all that is good, including your emotional well-being. And it only comes from him. And this can certainly frame a conversation if you set it up thusly. So finally, Jesus wants us to frame our conversation with the understanding that prayer changes things. Now notice that the next uh, line in his prayer template is your kingdom come. And I really, really, really want us to get what this means. This single line contains two massive implications for us. The first is that God's kingdom has not come, at least not all the way. And two, that we can pray that it will, and that must matter, meaning prayer changes the state of reality in ways so incredibly grandiose that they can only be described as the coming of God's kingdom on earth. And Jesus assumes that where God's kingdom has not come, we can pray, and that can change. And I realize that many of us, when pressed, we might say we believe this intellectually, but in my experience, we simply don't think it's true, at least not consistently, and at least not across the board. What many of us really believe is that whatever's going to happen is going to happen whether we pray or not. And there's an entire theological tradition for this line of thinking, and it has a tagline, God is in control. And I believe personally, and not to step on toes if you use that line, but I believe that that is a disastrous lie. Because I, I believe that God is in charge, absolutely, but not in unilateral control. Read the story of the scriptures. You have a say, for better or for worse, in most cases for worse. I have a say. Angels and demons have a say. Life is wild and chaotic, even arbitrary at times, I would argue. And yet, God is involved, absolutely. He acts, he intervenes, he steps into human history, he does stuff, he changes things, and he often does so based entirely on a single prayer. The Bible is filled with stories of this very thing happening again and again and again. God, off, get this, God often reverses his own decrees because someone prayed. One person asks for one thing and God changes things. And we'll talk about that more throughout the series, but what I want you to get tonight is that we have to step into prayer believing that what we're saying actually matters. And to elaborate, let's look at uh, what is perhaps my all-time favorite quote from Dallas Willard. This is, yeah, it's been a while, right? This is huge for us. God's response to our prayers is not a charade. He does not pretend that he is answering our prayer when he is only doing what he was going to do anyway. Our requests really do make a difference in what God does or does not do. The idea that everything would happen exactly as it does, regardless of whether we pray or not, is a specter that haunts the, haunts the minds of many who sincerely profess belief in God. It makes prayer psychologically impossible, replacing it with dead ritual at best. And of course, God does not respond to this. You wouldn't either. So, with that in mind, let's piece this portrait together. Jesus' disciples come to him, teacher, 
How do we have this incredible prayer life that you demonstrate before us every single day? Jesus says, I'll teach you. First, before you even step into the reality of prayer or ask for anything, I want you to know this. God is your Father. Your Father is as close as the air all around you. You get to not only enjoy the closeness of a good father, but you get to tap into all that makes him so unique. And when you talk to him, things happen that wouldn't happen otherwise. Look at that. As simple as that is, or at least seems, I think that it has the power to change everything. And I want you to imagine just for a moment What might change for you personally in the way that you pray if you truly believed each and every one of those presuppositions to the very core of your being, if you brought them innately to the way that you prayed? What if no part of your desire to pray or lack thereof were compelled by a portrait of an unfriendly or aloof or cruel, unknowable God? What if you did not believe the point of prayer was to read a grocery list at your ceiling? What if you were not fatalistic or pessimistic? What if you didn't truly believe that your prayers had any bearing on the future, but that they actually changed things? If that were the case, do you think personally that it could change the way that you pray, that you talk to God? And there's a reason all this stuff comes first. We, ha- we have, have to understand this. We have to get this stuff before we even reach the second half of Jesus' prayer template. There's a reason that it comes in this order. And the next line in Jesus' template is this. Give us each day our daily bread. When we make our way back to our series on the Sermon on the Mount throughout the summer, we'll unpack this and the rest of the Lord's Prayer in detail. But tonight... I don't want to end without us seeing that there's absolutely space for us to ask God for the things that we need. Heck, you even get to ask for the things that you want. Um, So think back to the example that I used of my son earlier. Of course, I will give him water when he says he's thirsty. Uh, But also, I would love to read books with him if that's what he asked for, or to play with toys if that's what he asked for. I, I actually enjoy those things. And God is after so much more than your base survival. He's after your joy and your fulfillment and your thriving as a human being. Um, now, interestingly, he's got a way of defining those things that often surprises us personally. But his version is always better, and that's always his disposition to you is good. Good for you, good for your life, good for your family. He's a good, 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 very, very good dad. He's not Santa Claus. He's not ClickList. Do you guys know about ClickList? Do you have that thing yet? The Tavernist. Get one for tomorrow. Wow, you set it up a day before? Yeah. Yeah, I don't know. I, I use it first to just have solidarity with you, Nicole. But uh, when, I, when I'm doing it, I feel weird about it. So you don't know what it is. It's like this thing on Fred Meyer. You, uh, is it exclusive to Fred Meyer, Cam? Yeah, you, you type in the things that you want on their internet homes. And, uh, and then... <laughs> You go to the store and some gentleman comes out with a bag and says, here are the things that you ordered. And you've already paid for it and everything. Like, and uh, <laughs> he's like the, uh, I don't know how much you guys know about, you'll appreciate this, Cam. And there's several unnamed characters on The Simpsons. They just have like uh, titles. So there's this recurring character called Pimple Face Teen. And um, it's like he comes to your car and he's like, here are your groceries. And... Uh, <laughs> And they have this weird rule where they, if they don't have a certain thing, they're allowed to substitute for you. And it's always just horrible. So they're like, I couldn't find the organic beans. It's like, what are you talking about? There's a whole shelf. I couldn't find the organic beans, so I gave you a zucchini. You know, that kind of thing. <laughs> uh, so I use it. And I think that probably it's a good thing. But also, I'm like, what is this doing to us as humans? <laughs> that this is so, do you know what I'm saying? As any, to our homes? No. No, that's where we draw the line, Nicole. Don't let them do At least give us the... I don't know. Yeah, I'll let them deliver it. I'll think about it. <laughs> anyway, the point I was making with all that is that God is not Santa Claus for us to, you know, recite a wish list to or click list. You go and you fill in the things and he shows them up. He does his half, you do your half. 
But you can and should ask for things. Absolutely. That's why we've handed out, uh, or that's why we will hand out these uh, prayer cards um, at the end of the gathering. They'll be on the info table when you leave. Grab a couple. You'll need them throughout the series. Um, Because you ask for things when you pray. And we're going to dive much deeper into that in the weeks to come. Now, any one of our kids' volunteers can tell you that my son isn't perfect. I've I've used him a lot in this teaching because it's convenient, but, you know, he's got his stuff. (laughs) He's not quite to the point yet, even with all his imperfections, where he knows to ask for things compelled by excess or greed or materialism just yet. I'm sure it's coming, but right now it's it's pretty sincere. More often than not, he asks for things because he assumes that I'm the only one who can provide them for him. Uh, So in that sense, he's dependent on, on me and on his mom. Or in his own way, he asks because he wants more of us. He asks for things because he wants to talk or he wants to interact or he wants to play. When you approach God the same exact way, it is a beautiful, beautiful thing. With the assumption that you are dependent on your Father and anything good that you can possibly get has to come by way of of God. And when we understand that God is the source of every good thing and that there is no sense of life or love or purpose without God, then we learn how to ask for things well. Now, to end tonight, I want us to notice the way Jesus has ordered this template because I think there's a, a great amount of intentionality here. The Lord's Prayer, this text, and, and more so the version in Matthew's Gospel, is not primarily, at least, a, a liturgy to recite with exact specificity. It is a template to guide us. And I believe the orientation of the template is crucial. We begin with God as Father. He is inherently good and inherently good to me. His disposition toward me is always good. He's close by all the time. He's involved. He's accessible. He's unlike anyone else. He's wonderful and praiseworthy and always good. We want to be like him, and in prayer we get to access what he's like. And we want the whole world to be different because of God and for his sake, his kingdom come. And then we start to ask for our stuff, for our needs and our wants. And I'm sure many of us, myself absolutely included, often order things entirely backward, (laughs) You, you lapse immediately into prayer with, God, I need this, I want this, please, please, please take care of this person, heal this person, give me a good life, provide these things. Now, is asking for any of that stuff wrong? No, that's not a trick question. No, there's nothing wrong with that whatsoever. But the priority is all out of whack, right? That's the uh, American prayer, not the, the Lord's prayer. And we want to learn to pray like Jesus. After all, he is our rabbi, he is our teacher, and we want to be like our teacher, which is why we are beginning the next practice of Jesus this week. Communities, uh, when you gather this week, you'll go to practicingtheway.org and you'll set to work on week one of prayer, which is just the basics. If you're not yet in a community, that's fine. If you're, you know, hearing this recording on a podcast or something, you can grab a friend or two and you can join up with us just the same. You're absolutely welcome to do that. Each week, we're going to teach on a certain genre of prayer here on Sunday evening, and then we'll go off into our communities to practice that type of prayer in the week that follows. And we're beginning very gently. This week is just about setting aside a time and place to pray, even if it's only for 10 minutes. Each and every one of you can absolutely accomplish that if you decide to. Remember, you are always in control of how you do and do not spend your time. I cannot stress that enough. In fact, uh, you know, I believe personally that we should all be forced to forever change the expression, I didn't have time for blank, to I decided not to make time for blank. I say this a lot, and my friend Katie um, left, sent me a, a voice memo, actually, strangely. It's like, uh, and the voice memo began with, Josh, I didn't have, Josh, I decided not to make time for, <laughs> um, Now, prayer is absolutely a discipline. Throughout church history, it has always been held, a great variety of prayers, always been held to be a spiritual discipline. All meaningful relationships require intentionality and discipline. I hope that you guys know and understand that. That doesn't mean that it never happens organically or no element of it is organic whatsoever, but they all require disciplined intentionality if they are going to continue long term. I was telling Abby recently that the older I get, the more that I see that even my most meaningful friendships can easily wither 
if I don't dedicate the proper disciplined intentionality to them. Um, my wife, who I live with, for Pete's sake, it's like I can't get away from her if I wanted to, we still have to allocate time for just about everything good. Now, of course, tons of it happens organically without us trying, but we have to still absolutely plan on things like conversations and dates and serious talks and sex and vacation and fun days. It doesn't just always happen spontaneously. You have to plan stuff. So we make sure that it does. My closest friends and I have breakfast together once a week uh, so that we can be in each other's lives and have conversations. Or we have this movie club thing we do once a month where we just watch a movie together. Or uh, I play uh, D&D regularly with, with my friend, Yid, his name's not really Yidmir, but in Dungeons and Dragons it is, um, uh, with Peter, we, 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 we play. Uh, and it's all about really relational intentionality. What I mean is that um, it's not necessarily because I love breakfast. In fact, the place where we eat is kind of bad. Breakfast is pretty bad. And coffee is iffy at best. You like the breakfast. You like the breakfast. Uh, for me, it's like, why did I pay for this? Uh, but here we are five years later. Um, it's not necessarily because I love breakfast. It's not necessarily even that I love the movie night, though I do enjoy it, or the D&D, which, don't get me wrong, get me I love it. Really, it's about, and I am an excellent dungeon master, if I do say so much, it's really about relational intentionality because it won't happen unless we plan it and we schedule it and we do it. And what I mean is that if you don't discipline and schedule your time with God, it won't happen with any consistency or value whatsoever. Maybe it will for a little season at a time, but not long term. Even if you just start small, 10 minutes every day for a week, you can absolutely do this. So this, this week, we're going to take about 10 minutes to simply pray our way through this very straightforward template. God, as your Father, that He's close, that He's not like anyone else, that we get to ask for things, we want His kingdom to come, here's what I need. That's it. You guys can do it. I absolutely believe in you guys and your ability to do this. I, I really mean that. And I'm really, honestly, and genuinely so excited about what's to come. This is just, this is just the beginning. Believe me, it's going to get so much better. So excited about what we're getting into. And really, this practice is about what I believe to be the inevitable transition from work to joy, uh, from practice to absolute enjoyment. Believe it or not, there are folks out there, you probably know at least one, who genuinely enjoy setting massive amounts of time aside just to pray. Anyone know someone like that? Or, or I hope maybe there's some in the room. Um, and yes, they are disciplined, but, you know, by nature. It stands to reason they have to be. But it's not just that. In fact, if you know someone like that, ask them. It's because they know something that those of us who do not yet enjoy prayer have yet to learn. And the weeks ahead are about us learning that too. The great incomparable joy of talking with a good father, of knowing him, of being known, of seeing the world change as a result. That's what we want to learn together. And I'm really excited to learn with you guys. So with that in mind, would you guys mind standing as we pray and ask the Spirit to come?